This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome back to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility, focusing on dancers and other aesthetic athletes. This is co-host Jennifer Milner, here with the founder of the Bendy Bodies podcast, Dr. Linda Bluestein. Our goal is to bring you up-to-date information to help you live your best life. Please remember to always consult with your own healthcare team before making any changes to your routine. Our guest today is Andrea Zuko, physical therapist. Andrea, hello, and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Linda. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really looking forward to this. So are we. We are looking forward to it. Yes. So let me ask you, Andrea, before we dive in, we have a lot we want to talk about as we dive into the foot and ankle. But before we do, could you tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Okay. So I am a physical therapist as well as a licensed Pilates instructor. Um, I started this journey um, kind of in this field, uh, training as a dancer way back when, I like to say in the 1900s, that does age me a little bit. Um, studied all different uh, styles of dance, uh, worked professionally um, when I was in my late teens and early 20s. And unfortunately that um, stopped due to injury which then opened up the next door for me in my life, which was getting into healthcare specifically for dancers via the Pilates world first, and then finally into the physical therapy world. So I'm currently practicing as a physical therapist. I, I do quite a few things. I am the clinic manager at Westside Dance Physical Therapy here in New York City. I'm also uh, adjunct faculty at NYU uh, Tisch Dance Department. Let me just say that again. I'm adjunct faculty at NYU's Tisch Dance Department. And uh, downtown, as I like to say, I teach anatomy courses to the BFA dance majors. And I also run an on-site PT clinic for the dance majors. And then finally, the third cap that I wear is I am the founder of Dance Medicine Education Initiative. And that is a collaborative continuing education company that I launched formally in 2020. So you do a lot and you work with several different organizations, which has enabled you to work with dancers starting from the younger pre-professionals through college students, all the way through professionals at all stages of their career. Great. We cannot wait to pick your brains on this. So let's start with the myth that hypermobile dancers all have banana feet. Can, can you have hypermobility without the crazy high arches? Oh, yes. The banana feet. <laughs> I show <laughs> pictures of banana feet quite often to, to, to my dancers just to articulate exactly where movement can occur. You know, if you have a lot of movement in your foot and ankle, you definitely are able to kind of tease that out from a visual perspective um, uh, in somebody who has that type of foot range of motion and mobility. Um, you can have 
Hypermobility though, um, if you have a type of foot that might not look like a banana, that might be a little bit more of a flatter type of foot. It's actually a, what's called a flexible flat foot is very common in dancers with hypermobility. And um, what that means is that when you are standing uh, on the floor, you're weight bearing, your arches tend to lower closer to the floor. So your foot has a flatter foot type of posture to it. However, when you rise up into demi point and certainly all the way up into full point, the inside arch, the medial arch, which is what we're really looking at reappears. So you're able to, in a more non weight bearing position or a more pointed position, be able to, um, achieve more of a pointed arch type of foot posture. So not all dancers have, hypermobile dancers have um, this kind of banana style of foot. Um, many have a flatter foot when they're weight bearing on the ground, and then they have a beautifully pointed foot um, when they are, you know, their foot is up in the air, it's not weight bearing. Of course, there is the, you know, third type of foot posture, which is more of a stiffer type of flat footed posture. That's not necessarily going to change too much um, between when the foot is weight bearing on the ground or if the foot is, is, is not weight bearing, say it's more um, in a, either a partial weight bearing demi point or even up as a gesture foot in the air. It's very important in terms of my work with dancers is especially the young dancers, the pre-professionals and the collegiate dancers and the recreational dancers that, you know, the banana foot really, it has its own issues <laughs> in the tissues. It is not like this ideal that does not have its own challenges, especially with somebody who has some hypermobility or a dancer with hypermobility. Um, that type of foot can be very challenging to control when you're loading weight through it, especially if you're putting that type of foot into a point shoe, which we see often, you know, we have, uh, you know, we could look and you could find this type of foot posture anywhere via Instagram versus any company or, you know, a dance class, you know, that's, it's, it's very challenging working with that type of foot. So again, wonderful from an aesthetic perspective in terms of you really can appreciate the articulation of motion, but the real, I think, focus should be on control rather than trying to achieve a certain type of position or posture, or maybe trying to certainly force the foot into a certain type of posture, maybe through rigorous stretching techniques that might not necessarily be so healthy for the feet. So it, that's really fascinating because what's visually appealing may actually be more challenging in some ways than what is maybe considered less aesthetically desirable. And that makes me think about ankle sprains in particular and how some dancers can, you know, really struggle with that. So can you talk a little bit about ankle sprains, what, what that actually means and how that might impact future risk of ankle sprains? Sure. So an ankle sprain, we know it's when uh, one or more ligaments here at the ankle are either partially or completely torn. Um, you know, it's very interesting. The really risk area or the risk range is when you are either in the process of rising up onto full point or when you're lowering yourself down off a of full point. Now that could be off of a point shoe or that could be 
coming down off of demi point. So kind of that, that mid range position from when your foot is on the ground flat and when your foot is kind of locked up in the high point of its, of its releve. So um, you, you have this kind of precarious zone, if you will. And what happens is that um, you have this usually rapid shift of your center of mass of your body over this weight bearing foot. And what happens most often is that the lateral ligaments are injured as that ankle rolls outward, which causes the foot to twist. Um, and these ligaments on the outside of the ankle are overstretched and will tear depending on how much force is put through them. Certainly you could go a little bit further and you could actually have something called an avulsion fracture where there's a little piece of bone that is chipped off of the edge of the, of the fibula. If you will, we're talking about the lateral ligaments of the ankle. So being in that plantar flex position, kind of transitioning in and out of it is a range or a zone of vulnerability to any dancer. And certainly if you are a dancer that has a hypermobile foot, which again can be to your advantage, right? And certainly if you're dancing on point, you need to have some degree of hypermobility of your foot. Um, but if you're working with um, a situation where either you have a local hypermobility of your foot and ankle, or you're dealing with more of like a general hypermobile body type, um, I think that, um, or at least what I've read and what I've experienced as a clinician is that you're probably, you're a little bit more susceptible to ankle sprains based on maybe some proprioceptive challenges, some um, maybe being a little bit more at risk for strength and balances at the foot and ankle. Um, and then putting that load and putting yourself into that position could predispose you to ankle sprains. Once you have an ankle sprain, um, you know, you can have, you know, healing, um, but usually the previous elasticity and the resilience of the ligaments rarely return. So again, if this happens, um, I definitely encourage my dancers that I work with to really take the time to heal because there's a lot of information out there about, you know, different case studies or even some research articles on if you go back too early, you will compromise sufficient ligament repair. And again, we're talking about not even necessarily being able to get back to a hundred percent. That was really important. So in terms of how much time for healing, I want to make sure that people really pause and think about this a minute too. It also depends on the degree of tear, right? Like that would also make a difference. Yeah, correct. So in general, you know, we grade ligament um, sprains on a scale of one to three. Um, and we can also consider how many ligaments are compromised. You can have a more severe injury in one ligament and a more minor injury in another ligament. Um, so that again is also going to affect the healing time and the plan, but we have to think about how the collagen matures, the time that is needed for protection, the time that is needed for gradual loading, um, and the time that is needed to continue to work on, um, kind of regaining alignment control, proprioceptive control, to be able to condition the body, to be able to handle the stresses that the dancer needs to be um, able to handle. You know, this rehab can take, it might not necessarily be in the clinic this long, but it can take months, if not up to a year. Um, they have found some deficits lasting that long. You know, and you really don't want your dancers to, you don't want to become a coper. You want to try to 
you know, do your best to try to avoid entering into that, that kind of category where you're just, you know, setting yourself up for, for potential future injury. Um, and certainly multiple sprains over and over, over time can then lead to chronic ankle instability. And then you just have what we call sometimes just this loose bag of bones. It's very, very difficult to stabilize and certainly layering on a hypermobile, um, uh, hypermobility or hypermobile body type, I think can make things a bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think something that's important for people to hear out of all of this is that a lot of times when I see people with ankle sprains, they think that once it stops hurting, they're good to get back into the class or back into the dance um, studio. And there's so much more to it, as you said, with proprioception, with retraining it, retraining muscle strength that you aren't even aware that you lost because it's only been a couple of weeks. How bad could it be? But it really is something that takes a long time, especially with hypermobility, to regain that full sense and full use of that foot. So I appreciate what you said. I hope nobody hears that Andrea is saying you have to be out of the studio for a year. But no. she is saying, take your time getting back in. And then when you get back in, you're going to still want to continue doing work with a physical therapist or someone who can help you continue to train and get you back to full speed. It's not something you want to skip. Because is it not true that the biggest predictor of an ankle sprain is if you've already had an ankle sprain? <laughs> Correct. Yes. And, and of course, is pain. We know that pain is a great motivator. It's true. It's true for all of us. It's true for myself. Once something, you know, whatever injury I happen to be dealing with at the moment, once that pain goes away, sure. I mean, we all want to get back to what we're doing, right? Injuries are inconvenient. <laughs> they never happen at a good time. You know, we have the time to actually, you know, really um, uh, make a plan in our schedule or open up that space. So yes, no, you're not going to be out unless it's a, you know, you're talking about having a major surgery where you maybe needed some kind of reconstructive procedure. You're not going to be out of the studio for a year. It's just, about you got to think of the long game with this type of injury that you continue to you know check in with somebody or you know if you have the opportunities to um, work with um, a somatics practitioner whether it be Pilates or gyrotonic or you know something that some someone that helps a trainer someone that helps you with cross conditioning you know, they can continue to help you kind of build your program um, for a longer period of time, which, you know, has a lot of benefits for the rest of your body. So sometimes you're giving yourself that space to heal from an injury. You, you sometimes you really can wind up really benefiting in a lot of other ways from healing what you thought was just an ankle or just <laughs> a metatarsal or, or what have you. Right. That's so important. And that's so true about so many injuries that we have. Um, moving to the talus. Talus is a great bone. So talk to us a little bit about the talus and why is it so important? Um, and, and what happens when bones like the talus do not move correctly? Like talk about optimal movement of the talus. What exactly is happening? All of that kind of thing. The talus. Yes. The talus. I'm going to get really nerdy here. It's one of my favorite yes. bones. Bring it. <laughs> Maybe because I spend the most time with it in my practice, <laughs> helping, helping it, nourishing it, uh, reeducating it. Um, yes. The talus is this, you know, it's, it's a central uh, bone of the ankle. 
Okay. Um, it's, it's, uh, part of a group of bones, which are collectively referred to as the tarsus. Uh, it articulates with the tibia and fibula. So that forms our ankle joint or the talocrural joint. If we want to get our anatomy, uh, terminology in there, it also articulates with the calcaneus, which is our heel bone and our navicular, which is a bone in more of the midfoot area. And I look at this uh, region of bones as, and their articulations or their connections with each other as a real highway of, uh, of information in terms of there's a lot of transmission of weight and force between the lower extremity and the foot occurring in this area. So really kind of looking at this area as a whole as um, something that needs to be well aligned, <laughs> um, something that an area that needs to be able to move adequately, but also to be very stable. Um, the talus bone, it's very unique in the sense that it lacks any direct muscular attachment. So we're talking about st stability of the talus is really created by the numerous ligaments that attach to it. And you have ligaments on the outside. You've got your lateral, some of your lateral collateral ligaments, your deltoid ligament on the medial side. You can also think about ligaments that are attaching um, uh, inferiorly, connecting with the calcaneus, um, and then from there into the midfoot, talking about the navicular. Um, and all of these ligaments really help to kind of, I think, tether or provide stability of this talus. Um, and really maintaining alignment of this joint, which is described often as a mortise joint, which is more of a, I guess, a carpenter term um, in terms of one bone fitting in between the two. Um, you know, it's, it's, it depends on stability of the, of the ligaments in terms of passive stability, but I think it's stability more dynamically uh, depends on the rest of the lower extremity. And we don't even have to stop there. It can go up to the pelvic girdle, to the lumbopelvic girdle, even to the thorax. So I find that um, alignment issues or, uh, or issues of impingement, issues of uh, tracking of the ankle, a lot of times are driven by more proximal problems um, that are concerning the hip in terms of the musculature around the hip, which you know, by and large part, stabilizes the knee, right? And then we know that that knee um, joint needs to be able to track adequately over the foot or correctly over the foot and adequately over the foot. Um, and the efficiency of the hip musculature is really driven by the positioning and the control of the pelvis and the lumbar spine. So I know it's so cliche that one thing connects to the other, but it does. <laughs> And, and a lot of times, you know, those issues in the tissues um, can lead to alignment problems at the talus in the absence of injury. Mm -hmm. We're talking about injuries specifically going back down to the ankle, to the talocrural joint. Usually that talus will get, you know, if I can say, you know, we use words called, um, we use words like subluxation. Okay, that's very simply like it just, you know, some kind of abnormal force went, was placed or introduced into this ankle joint and it has disrupted its alignment, usually as a result of ligament injury. Um, so we're talking about ankle sprain. 
So ankle sprain, your lateral ligaments, you end up rolling over your foot, your foot is twisted into this inverted position, and that talus kind of gets knocked off its track a little bit, right? And if that is not uh, reset back into place um, in terms of through any kind of necessary manual techniques, um, I find that then you start to run into kind of tracking problems. This is something that many dancers are familiar with. It's called a jammed ankle. You can call it simply a jammed ankle, exactly what's happening. You, or talus is not tracking correctly in and out of the mortise and you go to perform whatever it is, if it's a closed chain dorsiflexion, so that's a plie um, or a closed chain plantar flexion, that could be a demi-point releve, full point releve, or even a tendu, you're potentially going to be pinching the soft tissue structures of that joint and that is going to become quite painful and um, problematic. Interesting. And what if I feel like a lot of people that I've worked with, and I have to confess, I personally also deal with this. When I plantar flex my feet, I get like a pretty loud clunking in my ankles. And I know that, that there is um, CO2 release right in different parts of the body that, so that may or may not mean any, anything, but can you maybe tell people how they might have a better idea if something is actually subluxing versus if it's, if there's just that CO2 release, if that makes sense. I can give you personal antidote because I certainly cannot tell you how other people feel in their bodies. Right. The difference is the quality of the sensation. There's a difference in the quality of a sensation between a joint making that cracking sound or popping sound versus let's say it's more of a soft tissue structure, like a tendon feeling more like a rubber band that kind of snaps over or rubs over a bony prominence. Um, you know, you can have a subluxation of your joints that, especially if you have a body type that is hypermobile, um, on a regular basis, <laughs> you know, you're kind of clicking around and, you know, things don't get stuck until they do. Um, but a lot of that is not necessarily pathological. I wouldn't seek it out. You know, I, I tell my dancers who have hypermobility that have the ability to, you know, clunk the hip and self-manipulate their cervical spines and, you know, do all these other, you know, interesting um, self-manipulations, <laughs> you know, I caution them not to, um, not to do too much of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I find sometimes that is more of a manifestation of anxiety mm -hmm. <laughs> than it is a need to, to, um, to constantly adjust. Um, but I also then, uh, explain to them, well, you know, that could be a sign that maybe your muscular system is not doing its job or could do a little bit of a better job to help your, your body stabilize. So I hear you, Linda, saying that you feel like, you know, if your talus kind of, kind of slips forward a bit, which is, which is common. And certainly if you have, um, a hypermobile foot that talus definitely can, can slide forward. It should go back. Um, sometimes it doesn't. Um, there are ways that you can simply try to coax it back in. I find that dancers with hypermobility, you know, it's, it's a lot of times, I think that um, 
minor, more minor episodes of slipping out of place can really be worked out via self-care. Great. Fantastic. Other times self-care doesn't work and you really need someone to help you restore the optimal alignment of your body, like a physical therapist, or even I've got uh, colleagues, you know, you, Jennifer, I'm sure you've got the, you know, a list of, of a nice little, um, list of items or techniques that you could help your dancers use to kind of get their joints back into place. Um, that can be very beneficial, but, um, you know, self-treating the foot and ankle in terms of subluxations in some situations, um, can be very difficult. You know, I'm all about advocating for self-care and self-treatment through movement restoration and movement re-education and strengthening on top of that. But sometimes you just need help kind of restoring that. And then you've got to like, it's like the start again, start by stabilizing again. <laughs> that sounds like a very reasonable approach to, to take. And when it comes to um, the bones and stress fractures, can you talk a little bit about Taylor stress fractures and stress fractures in other parts of the foot and ankle? Um, what kind of things you see in the hypermobile population, hypermobile dancers, and what some important considerations might be. Yeah, it's interesting that you're bringing up the talus. Is this because of any kind of specific, <laughs> what does inspire? Because Taylor fractures are not that common. I happen yeah. to, Jen's raising her Go hand, ahead. but actually <laughs> I know I have patients and family members that have had stress reaction in the, in the talus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have too, and I, I've had... I think four or five of them, which seems like a really high number, but all but one of them, obviously I was not the primary point person for them, right? But all but one of them were in hypermobile people. And so I started wondering what the relationship is between a talus that might be out, like represented forward, and they're sort of going through their day-to-day -day and not allowing it that full posterior glide and uh, stress fractures. So yeah, we're, I think we both are interested in this and would like to know. <laughs> yeah, really interesting because statistically, it's really not that common. But you know, I have a dancer actually right now that I'm working with who um, really suffered an impact um, injury to her talus. And uh, I thought to myself, okay, maybe I'll, I'll speak about this a little bit. So a stress fracture, it's, it's injury to the bone. It can be a small crack in the bone. It could be severe bruising within the bone. And most stress fractures are caused by overuse and repetitive activity, certainly the ones I've seen. Yes, I've seen some acute traumas that have involved um, dancers colliding with pieces of scenery or uh, suffering a, a, some kind of fall or something collapses on top of their foot. But that's been pretty rare in my practice. It's usually due to overuse and repetitive activity. And, you know, this is true of, you know, other athletes that are involved in constant repetitive forces. So, you know, things like rock, walking, running, jumping, you know, dancers do it all. <laughs> um, but you do see stress fractures in other athletic populations like runners, soccer players. And um, in the absence of acute trauma, you're usually... Um, dealing with a situation where you have this imbalance between bone formation and, bo and bone re reabsorption or resorption, which is the removal of the bone. So when a bone is loaded or stressed, 
during weight-bearing exercise, it responds by increasing its bone turnover. So this is necessary for it to live up to the demands that we place on it. This is a normal part of the physiology of what happens with our skeletal system. So when stress is applied to the bone, the area of the bone can become damaged and these damaged areas of bone are then reabsorbed, removed and replaced with new bone. So usually there's a nice balance, right? Everything, everybody's happy um, in terms of this rate of turnover. But if the new bone is formation is slower than the removal of the old bone, we can have weak points occurring at areas of stress within the affected bone. So this can develop into a stress fracture if that weak area of the bone is repeatedly stressed. Usually this happens gradually over time, sometimes, um, and is worse during weight-bearing activities. So oftentimes it's due to a change in training, um, and this could be frequency, duration, intensity, um, what type of surface you're dancing on or your footwear. Maybe it's something, you got a bad pair of point shoes or something like that. Or um, you can also have to take a look at your bone density. And certainly in adolescence, we know that there's a period of where the bones are a little bit weaker because of the growth that occurs. So we know that that density is going to catch up a little bit later. So that's in a normal uh, menstruating adolescent female, there is still this kind of uh, period of time where the bones are not going to be as strong because they're grown in size, but their density has not caught up yet. So I typically see more metatarsal stress fractures in my practice but <laughs> I have seen um, an injury to the talus. It was uh, a, a stress, well, it's actually a severe bruising of the talus. So there was no um, uh, fracture of the bone, but there was a significant contusion of the talus. And this young woman that I've been working with, she's uh, in musical theater and she has been dealing with a couple of very significant ankle sprains that have happened to her. I've known her now for, let's see, right before she went away to conservatory for college. Um, so I've known her now for about five years. And she, during that time had suffered um, two significant sprains that I know of um, that really affected the mobility and stability of her ankle. And, uh, but you know, things we took care of things as best as possible, stabilize, good alignment, mindfulness, good recovery, rest days, everything was, was good until it wasn't. And she was in a class and was it maybe a little deconditioned, but pushing herself a little bit. And she went to do a soda shot across the floor. And of course that involves really moving at a significant speed and landing on one leg in a turned out position. And it just, things were not lined up well. She didn't sprain her ankle, but I think the forceful dorsiflexion that occurred really just, I don't think her tal a talus must've been out of alignment. I wasn't there at the time, but it just resulted in such a deep pinch and almost kind of a jamming sensation of her ankle that she had to limp out of the studio. So what do I think happened? I think that there was some alignment issue going on in her ankle before this happened. 
But what we have since discovered is that there's a lot of hip stability control mm. issues that still creep up and um, we have to, you know, address and take care of, manage, they go away and they creep up again. So that's something I think that practitioners that work with hypermobile dancers have to consider is that situations can arise (laughs) again, and maybe it's not the full-fledged injury and that's great. But in terms of stability, it's like, you need to do kind of a body check. And I found that, you know, that I kind of looking at that more and more with my dancers with hypermobility. I mean, I like to think actually I do that with everybody. I try to take a holistic approach with my patients. So it's never just an ankle. It's never just an elbow. It's never just, you know, your L5 vertebrae. (laughs) Um, It's really the whole body and, 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 and just assessing and treating up and down the chain as you see fit and continuing to monitor it because things can slip out. I mean, I certainly have, I'm sure you have dancers who tell you, it feels like my, my body just kind of slips and slides out of place often. And that's a normal occurrence for them. And, you know, that's where, you know, in many situations they can kind of get themselves integrated, reintegrated and put back together. And other times they need to, to, they need help. They need more hands-on help, more directed help by somebody, you know, looking at their bodies, assessing their bodies, helping them find that place where they need to to be. I think taking that holistic approach is so important because mm-hmm. if you're if you if you're not addressing some a contributing factor like that, like like the hip stability, like the example that you gave earlier, then you're putting yourself at risk for re injury. And this is where I kind of go a little bit crazy with people if they're if they're you know using their insurance for their physical therapy right? Don't, aren't you kind of caught sometimes with that? Or how does, how does that work for you as a practitioner? So I have to say that I am, the work that I do is all out of network. Mm. That being said, you know, I do have plenty of, of patients of mine that will submit to insurance and insurance can get really bent out of shape if they see treatment for one area of the body, when it's, you know, the prescription is for another area of the body, right. so I have found that I have been able to get around that. Um, as long as I link all of my objective findings about say in the situation, when I use the example of this dancer, the hip stability and control issues, if I link it down to the foot, because there has been plenty of literature talking about the importance, let's say, of the gluteus medius and mm-hmm. lateral ankle stability. Mm-hmm. So there you go. So you can kind of, you know, always put it in context of the body part that is, you know, so, so, so-called uh, you're authorized to treat. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are treating that and you're treating that because you're helping to balance out the, the leg, um, the lower extremity so that the ankle will function better. So, um, that's how I, so my, my notes tend to become, uh, pretty extensive documents over time, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's just, it's just part of you. You have to look at your patient as a whole. You can't just say, okay, well, this is just an ankle and we're just gonna, you know, wrap you up and you're going to ice. And then you're going to like 
sit on the floor and do these TheraBand exercises and then, okay, fine, put your shoes on, go back. So without <laughs> considering anything else. And I don't think many people do that these days. Um, but I, I do, you know, think that well, at least when you're starting out and maybe you're, you're early on in your career, actually trying to really seeing those patterns and recognizing the importance of the integration of the whole body, um, you know, can be quite daunting as a new grad, but just mm-hmm. stick with it, stick with it and ask questions and get your mentorship and look up the research that is available out there that is clinically useful and and you'll start to really put it together mm-hmm. well and the more the more people you see the more pe- bodies you have in front of you the more patterns you start to see so you see one person with an ankle issue and maybe accidentally catch a hip thing and then you see another one and then the third one that walks in you think maybe I should look at their hip and so it sort of becomes you you learn from them right um, one of the areas that I didn't originally start associating with hypermobility was um, bunions. But the more hypermobile people walked through the door, and of course, most of whom I work with is uh, pre-professional, and they're still in the process of developing their bunions. And I ask the family history, and we talk through all of that, and not bunions don't have to occur, right? Sometimes they're genetic, sometimes you're predisposed to them, but sometimes it's an issue of technique not being correct or shoes that are not working right and forcing the foot in poor alignment. So I'm wondering, have you seen a higher incidence of bunions in people with hypermobility? It's a very interesting question, Jennifer. So are you talking about local hypermobility at the foot and ankle or more of like a generalized hypermobility? Well, certainly it could be localized. I mean, it could be generalized, but they would be the foot when I typically see that foot that's flatter in standing, but has that highly compressible foot that goes into that long, you know, lovely line when they go on point or on releve, and it's like the, the, their tissue is a bag, as we've talked about, that just kind of gets stretched out, stretched out. And so they have to work even harder with their foot strength, which I'm, I think we'll talk about in a little bit with tendons. But Without that support, they have a tendency, if they pronate, which a lot of dancers do, well, then their feet can go into a much bigger range of motion. Their metatarsals can go into a much bigger range of motion, perhaps, than other people who might pronate. And so they might be more predisposed to that. That's just something I've noticed. I was wondering if you've seen a higher incidence of that in hypermobile feet. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, the big question is, is that does hypermobility cause bunions or did the bunion result mm. in hypermobility? So, you know, there is, you know, like the thoughts that are out there, you know, what are these predisposing and precipitating factors that are, you know, cause are are behind the etiology of a bunion deformity. So this Mm -hmm. could be foot type, Mm -hmm. shoes, do you have hypermobility? What are your genetics? Is there any kind of abnormal anatomy of the foot? Um, but we don't really know like what the true etiology of hallux valgus, which is the more medical term for a bunion. Um, so you're not necessarily going to get them from like grandma Pat. (laughs) (laughs) You could possibly, you know, develop them if you inherited the same type of foot type as grandma Pat, (laughs) but possibly not because there's so many other, other, um, reasons why you might develop kind of this condition, which is really more of like a subluxation 
of this first metatarsal um, phalangeal joint or MTP joint. It's very interesting. If you start reading through some of the literature on that, the surgeons, the podiatric surgeons write about in terms of um, binding deformity and the causes of it, um, quite a few as of late um, feel that the bunion itself, the deformity itself drives hypermobility in the foot. And when they fix that bunion deformity, um, the hypermobility of the foot goes away, which I find to be very, very interesting. Now on the flip side of that, what I've seen in clinical practice is I have seen uh, more issues of this hallux valgus in feet that have that more of like a flexible foot type than a rigid foot type, which leads me to think, okay, maybe there's this dynamic stabilization issue going on. You know, sometimes there are those out there that don't feel that foot and ankle exercises really help. And in one sense, they probably don't. So the extrinsic and the intrinsic muscles of the foot really cannot support you passively <laughs> or they can't, they can't create an arch that's not there, mm-hmm. but what they can do is they can help you with like dynamic control of the foot. So mm-hmm. I, I definitely think that that's where we can really start to, to address issues of in a more flexible foot in a really highly compressible foot foot that might not have that control that is leading to kind of this excessive force on the first MTP joint. And over time, maybe that's leading to a little bit of breakdown. So it's, I think it's all about how you load your big toe joint onto the floor. (laughs) What is your strategy? Just to kind of keep it simple. How do you put it down? How do you look? We have those two little sesamoid bones, those little two P-shaped bones that are underneath your first Mm -hmm. metatarsal, right? Those are like your train tracks. Okay. They're really going to be responsible for enabling you to successfully push off through your first ray. What is your first ray? Your first ray is your medial row of bones that forms a medial longitudinal arch. Okay. That kind of terminates in this first MTP joint. And you've got the distal part of the hallux there, but um, how you put that foot down is going to pretty much dictate how you push off. And I do see now, again, is this chicken and egg (laughs) in the dancers that a situation where what came first, um, the dancers that I do see with these problems of, of, of symptomatic bunions, um, painful bunions, um, you know, I, I detect and kind of tease out loading problems during walking assessments, loading of problems during uh, basic dance technique assessments that really show an inability to really control the kind of excursion of the first ray and the stability and positioning of what happens to that big toe joint with load. So I do a lot of re-education in terms of teaching you how to walk, you know, who teaches who, how to walk. Do we ever really learn how to walk? No, we just kind of watch when we're little, we get up, we start walking for the most part. I think we do pretty well, (laughs) but we don't right. Either it's because of an injury or we just get ourselves into these imbalances that then lead to abnormal forces uh, coming, uh, being placed through the body. In this case, we're talking about the big toe joint. So Again, um, in dancers that have that more kind of flexible, mushy 
foot, that foot that maybe has a little bit, uh, uh, has a little bit too much pronation in terms of, uh, you know, pronation's a good word. It's not a dirty word. It's a good word. We need pronation of the foot um, for us to be able to load correctly onto our foot and push off. Um, but you want to make sure that that's controlled. And so in a lot of dancers that have bunion problems, I find that that pronation is not controlled. How they put their foot down, how they load through their first ray is not controlled. Um, again, going up to the hip, you know, a lot of them get really tight and restricted at the hip joint. They lose their internal rotation up at their hip, which you absolutely need for adequate push-off through that first ray. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those, those dancers, and again, these are probably the younger ones where they feel that it's, you know, they need to walk in first position all the time. (laughs) 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 Right. So everybody needs to see it. (laughs) Or or you just kind of get stuck there. And that maybe Mm -hmm. is your default habit. I habit. I see other people do that as well. It's not just, Mm -hmm. I should just, you know, sorry, pre pros out there, but you know, you don't have to. walk in first position. You shouldn't, you need internal rotation, um, as much <laughs> as you need external rotation. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, so those are things that I think are, are potentially driving problems, uh, of, of the, at this joint that can lead to a bunion, you know, certainly having, um, any kind of shoe wear that is not fitted properly to your foot is key. You know, certainly dancing with a point shoe, you need, if you have a compressible foot, you cannot be in a shoe that is going to cause you to sink all the way down to the floor. I mean, that is going to really drive a lot of abnormal forces going through your entire foot, including the big toe joint. So, um, you know, that is very, very important. Um, walking reeducation is important. Technique reeducation is important. Looking at that ankle stability, you know, looking at, do you have a tendency to kind of fall into a winged and overly winged position when you're loaded into a demi point position? You know, again, we think little, those little sesamoid bones under the ball of the big toe, you're just kind of mm-hmm. grinding them into a powder. I mean, that's like, you're going to, you're going to sublux them. And that's a big problem. It's so painful when that happens. Um, and, you know, again, you want to have that really good really good in line alignment and integrity of the forefoot that you're really, really using, um, the forefoot, uh, the, the metatarsal phalangeal joints, the ball of your foot is this beautiful platform that's equal opportunity. Okay. Maybe depending on the length of your little toe, you might not have as much weight bearing on that fifth toe, but you really need to have a nice balanced foot. I'm glad you brought that up about the winging. Cause I was wondering about that. And you see so many pictures, you know, on Instagram or wherever, and it looks like the entire weight of the foot is on the great toe. And, you know, I, I understand, you know, you want to avoiding sickling is important, but, um, and, and obviously there's a difference between, you know, doing a photo shoot and actually dancing that way. So, um, but I'm glad that you brought that up because. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can get into trouble with that. I, you know, I'm all about, if you want to wing your foot with your back foot, when you're in an arabesque ponche, what have you go for it. If you're in that beautiful line, right. It's kind of like doing a cat eye with your eyeliner, right. It's like that beautiful, <laughs> right. That swoop. Now you get, you're getting me talking with my hands now. <laughs> that's what I do. But that's fine, but it's not loaded. Right. Mm-hmm. It gets tricky. Right. You're just, you know, I mean, it's really, I think can put a lot of unnecessary stress 
through that big toe joint, which then potentially can lead to, to, to breakdown and this deviation that happens, which is really a progressive joint subluxation that doesn't reverse itself. Mm-hmm. And if we can uh, move from bones and those uh, specific issues into tendons, maybe, because um, I, I would love to hear what you think about tendon problems that are most common in hypermobile dancers and, and how you treat them. What do you see there? Ah, uh, tendons. Tendons are very difficult. <laughs> They're very difficult. They're very, I don't know. They're kind of cranky structures. Um, and also the way that they heal, um, in terms of how they respond to load really doesn't oftentimes, um, coordinate well (laughs) with a dancer who's working or a dancer who's actively training or, you know, someone who's in a collegiate program that can't take, you know, regular time off or kind of do this kind of on off loading cycle. So, um, you know, I definitely see a lot of tendinopathy. Um, this ranges from kind of your acute reactive tendinopathy, um, to more of like a chronic degenerative tendinosis type of problem. Um, typically the more acute tendinopathies in the younger population, or maybe it's your first time around and, um, or you have something like a paratendinitis where it's just a swelling kind of in the sheath of the tendon. If the tendon is a a tendon that has a sheath, um, or, you know, in the older population, um, you have, you know, more of a tendinosis kind of a chronic history of tendon problems. I mean, we know that, um, you know, repetitive motion and, um, can drive some tendinopathy. Um, but I tend to see more of issues coming. I find that issues come up when you're talking about overload, the most common scenario that brings dancers into see me with tendinopathy, uh, has to do with overload, sudden rapid overload. So that I'm talking about a change in uh, training, uh, frequency, duration, intensity, or a dancer who's working that is coming off of a break and they're coming from doing little, nothing to very little to coming back to like a full workload. You know, tendons like to be, you got to kind of stay in shape for your tendons. Okay. Because if you don't, um, then what happens is that the tissue becomes a bit weaker and it's not able to handle the same amount of tensile load and you can get back there, but it'll take time. We know that the body's tissues adapt to stress gradually, but we always, we don't always have the time (laughs) to, to do that. So, so, you know, kind of getting into that, that pickle of a situation where, you know, you've, you've had to rapidly load the body quickly, your semester started, your rehearsal period has started and you went away for three weeks on a beach and it was great and you enjoyed yourself, but you got out of shape or especially during this time with COVID, you know, you were doing your, your classes in your bedroom, uh, using your dresser as a bar, or you were trying to do some kind of center in uh, in your living room. And then all of a sudden, bam, you're right in the studio. And maybe you didn't have the guidance to kind of get back, um, into shape before starting that. Um, so all those factors going to bring those tendon problems, um, um, to me. And, uh, what I tend to see is I see a lot of Achilles tendinopathy, and then I see tendinopathy of your medial ankle tendons, 
So your Tom, Dick and Harry's, all the physical therapists are going to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, it's just a little bit of a, of a easy way to remember your medial ankle tendon. So that's your um, tibialis posterior, your flexor digitorum longus and your flexor hallucis longus. So those are the most common um, tendons that I see in my practice that are affected. I would say the fourth one after that would be more of the uh, peroneus longus tendon. Um, but uh, if we stick with the Achilles and the medial ankle tendons, um, I find that dancers with hypermobility are susceptible to these types of injuries. Um, why that exactly happens is actually really interesting. So you can have uh, injury or to overload of these tendons with very different foot postures or foot types, rather not foot postures, more arched types, or you can have a high arched, more rigid cavus type of foot that doesn't have a lot of shock absorption. Um, and you can have a more flexible, flatter foot, if you will, um, that has a lot of shock absorption, but not a lot of propulsion um, and, and is lacking maybe more medial ankle um, support. With the dancers that, that I see that have hypermobility and have a more high arched cavus type of foot, I find that that's often coupled with more knee hyperextension. And more knee hyperextension, I find sometimes drives a habit of dancers almost, how should I say this? It's almost as if they are, are, there's lack of control of the talus coming forward when they plant or flex their foot. It's they just kind of hit the position without really working through the foot. Does that make sense? Yeah. Kind of like, you know, that nice juicy, like tondu on the floor, right? Where you just kind of like, it's really luxurious. You really see all that articulation. You give yourself that time to really work through the foot. I find that dancers with this kind of combination of knee hyperextension with a cavus foot, it's really easy again. And then any kind of training um, uh, on top of that, that might advocate for that, um, I say that diplomatically, that kind of leads to that kind of rapid pushing of that foot mm -hmm. and of that ankle anteriorly, of that talus anteriorly, I find can lead to some trauma to the back of the ankle. And of course, the back of the ankle, we have the Achilles and we have the three medial ankle tendons. Mm -hmm. I also find that sometimes that um, in that type of, of scenario that, and, you know, again, if you have this dancers, it's totally fine. It's a beautiful way, like line of the leg. You just have to make sure that you are really taking the time to recruit the musculature of the round the foot and ankle adequately. So you can really feel your calves working because you have that plantar flexion mobility. You have the picture, you have the end result what was your journey? What did, how did, what was your strategy to actually get there? And you want to make sure that your calf attended the party <laughs> <laughs> so that you're not, you know, you're not kind of really jamming the back of the calcaneus up to the back of the talus, the Achilles getting trapped, or if you're not adequately um, contracting your calf, you might be using your deeper plantar flexors of your ankle and foot a bit too much. Mm. And so this gets Absolutely. In, a lot of work being done in terms of, you know, let's make sure that we're kind of really trying to inhibit the overuse of the Tom, Dick and Harry tendons 
and really making sure we get adequate gastroc soleus activation, right? But so, you know, we do these things where you can, you can do releve re-education, standing with the toes off the edge of the book and all that stuff to really teach you how to use your calves if that's something that you're finding uh, it to be a challenge. But again, also looking at that timing, mm-hmm. you know, to dance quickly, but still the, the jerk, it's, it's the path that you took to get there. In a dancer that has a more flexible type of foot that maybe doesn't have as much medial arch control, you know, oftentimes that can result in a, a heel. We use a term called valgus. Your heel or calcaneus bone might be uh, a little bit more in a valgus position, it's basically kind of rolled in toward the medial side. That can really um, affect how much load and force is being put through the Achilles tendon, as well as the medial ankle tendons. Um, and that sometimes leads to increased um, overload of those tissues and the results of tendinopathy. Um, again, go proximal and look at different, um, uh, you know, issues going on either with knee alignment, um, with hip alignment, with, uh, internal rotation control, with adduction control up at the hip and the knee, um, that could potentially be driving, um, increased, you know, even more force going through that medial column of the foot. Well, and something I'm hearing you say over and over again, a lot of times people end up at a physical therapist because something has come up, because something is wrong, right? And that's just sort of, unfortunately, you you guys get them when they have hit that point, and then you have to work backwards to fix it. But what a lot of my clients don't understand right away, because I see them before, hopefully, they end up with a physical therapist. When I say, hey, your feet are really pretty inflexible, let's make them stronger. And they're like, no, they're plenty strong, see? And they look so pretty, right? And and I work on re-educating that tandu over and over and over again. And I think that's something that that hypermobile people hear, and it's certainly something we say on the podcast over and over again, Whatever joints you've got that are hypermobile, it's so easy to lock into it. Like you were saying, to lock into the knee and to lock into the ankle. Uh, People with hypermobile shoulders, it's so easy to lock into the shoulder and the elbow. But what muscular re-education can we do to make that joint more stable and to give it all of that dynamic support that it needs so it's not just that passive support, as you were saying. So it's not just going to see someone when there's a problem, but it's finding someone that can help you before there's a problem. So make you stronger and, and make you a more efficient dancer who can use all of that beautiful loveliness. So if someone is not in New York City and can't go see Andrea Zuko, mm-hmm. how can they find someone who can help them with this? How would they, how would that, how would an artistic athlete find that medical professional or that really qualified trainer or somatic practitioner who can understand hypermobility and sort of the high demands on an artist's career? That's a really good question with not a simple answer. You know, this, this, this profession is growing. It's growing exponentially, which is wonderful um, because for so long, it was just, you know, a lot of, you know, it was people in New York and then you had a few people in California and then, you know, not very many in other places in this country. So um, it's continuing to grow. That being said, sometimes it's very challenging trying to find a dance medicine specialist. So a couple of things to kind of start you on your, on your hunt to try to find somebody, you know, certainly ask your teachers, ask around, don't be, you know, this, this whole culture of injury that we have to hide it and we can't talk about it. And it's this 
dark little dirty secret and we have to be perfect and pain-free hundred percent of the time, you know, that's, that's changing <laughs> for the better. Right. And, and, and hopefully, you know, this is something you can, you know, feel comfortable speaking to, to teachers about asking them, or maybe parents could potentially ask, who do they see? Who have they seen for any injuries that they might've been dealing with? Um, that would be, um, you know, something that you could consider. You could also um, try to find a practitioner through some of the professional organizations. So the big one that I'm a part of, um, as well as, 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 you are as, as well, is the International Association of Dance Medicine and Science, IADAMS for short. So if you go to IADAMS.org, um, I do believe they have resources that you can, um, a resource page that allows you to search for a practitioner in your area. Um, so that could be another way to, um, to see if there's somebody in your area to work with. Um, you know, in terms of, you could also, who's teaching Pilates in your area? Who's teaching gyrotonic in your area? You know, a lot of practitioners who are in that, those two professions are former dancers. So That's again, true. a little bit more networking, <laughs> seeing if they, who are they working with? Mm -hmm. Well, and as you said, and we've, we've had so many people say before in, in different areas, you just have to find that one person, right? You find the teacher who knows somebody or a parent who has somebody that works with their child, or mm -hmm. you find something in iAdams that may not be the exact fit for what you need, but they could recommend someone to you. So it's just, it's finding that one person and then mm -hmm. having that entire network that can come from knowing that one person. Andrea, you were talking a little bit earlier about overstretching and how dancers don't necessarily need to do that because you know, they kind of have the hypermobile dancers, they have that range usually. And so it's uh, maybe defeating the purpose. And if, as soon as you said that, I was thinking about foot stretchers. And is this something that is a good idea for dancers to use? Or does it depend? Or what is your thought on foot stretchers? Ah, foot stretchers. It's kind of like the black market device, right? At any time a dancer mentions to me <laughs> that they're using a foot stretcher, they kind of look like they've got their tail between their legs. Yeah. <laughs> afraid of what I'm going to say. So, I mean, I get why they were designed. <laughs> um, and I, I can understand why a dancer would want to use them. Um, and certainly, um, when you start using a foot stretcher, you're usually pre-adolescent, adolescent. So again, maybe having that, you know, self-reflection and analysis of why you're doing something, maybe you need a little bit of guidance on that. I, I find that foot stretchers are more often are sought by dancers or used by dancers is what I want to say. So foot stretchers are used, in my opinion, more often by dancers who have a stiffer type of foot, more of a uh, a foot that doesn't really have a lot of plantar flexion available at the talocrural joint, mm -hmm. which is the first area that you should plantar flex in, right? You should plantar flex at the talocrural joint first, followed by the midfoot, and then finally down at the metatarsal phalangeal joints. So, um, you know, if you don't have that you know, excessive range of plantar flexion, then your point looks a lot less arched or curved. 
And of course, a lot of dancers are self-conscious about that or unhappy about having that as their line. So they will seek out the use of using these foot stretchers. I have a big problem with that because a lot of times the reason why they don't have as much plantar flexion at their ankle, it has to do with the design of their foot. And you're not necessarily going to get a copious amount of plantar flexion at your, at your ankle as a result of using the foot stretcher. What I find happens is that the stress or the stretch, if you will, that the foot stretcher introduces is more at the midfoot and it becomes, it results in excessive force being placed at the midfoot and the midfoot where your transverse arches, that needs to be an area of really, really good stability. Mm-hmm. So if you're starting to really put a height, an excessive amount of force through that midfoot, um, I think it could potentially hurt you, <laughs> um, in terms of developing problems along the way, more of like a midfoot breakdown. Also, if you are trying your best to kind of force your foot into this, um, plantar flex position at your, at your ankle joint, um, you could potentially be damaging the structures that are in the posterior aspect of the ankle as you're trying to really push that calcaneus, um, up and forward. And, uh, I've had quite a few dancers over the years develop problems with posterior impingement. Uh, and that can be just a bruised state of process. That could be, um, an ostrogonum mm-hmm. uh, from using, from using a foot stretcher. Um, so, I mean, there are ways to safely stretch your feet. Um, I've taught many dance teachers how to safely stretch their students' feet. Um, I certainly work on that as a PT, um, how to stre- safely stretch the foot and ankle if it's needed. Um, but I find that, you know, the, the it's going to happen um, as a result of dance training over time, your constant, your foot, your body will adapt to the forces that you place through it. So you're going to continue to be working on your range of motion. Um, hopefully in a very sound way, as you go through your training, you don't need to force the foot into this extreme position that it might not be built for. That makes perfectly good sense. Yeah. Be very careful. <laughs> right. Right. That is all an excellent amount of advice for people to be able to take away with them. Um, so thank you very much for all of that. You're um, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for, you have been such a wealth of knowledge today on the whole topic of the foot and ankle. I know it's so easy to do a deep dive on it and, <laughs> and to keep talking about it because there's so much about it. It's such a complicated structure, especially for artistic athletes. Um, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Well, you can find me. So again, I manage uh, the clinic called Westside Dance Physical Therapy here in New York. So if you want to look up the website, it's uh, westsidedancept.com. So you can find me there. I'm listed as, as under the staff section. Um, you can email me um, at Andrea at westsidedancept.com. Or for those of you who want to know more about the collaborative dance medicine education that I do, you can look me up um, via my company, Dance Medicine Education Initiative. And the website is dancemedei.com. And I'm also on Instagram at dancemedei. And I'd be happy for you to, to follow me there and see what I'm up to. Excellent. Thank you so much, Andrea. 
You have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, we have been speaking with Andrea Zuko. Andrea, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other aesthetic athletes. If you found this information valuable, please share it with a colleague or friend and leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's at bendy underscore bodies and our website is www.bendybodies.org. If you want to follow Bendy Bodies founder and co-host Dr. Bluestein on Instagram, it's at hypermobilitymd, all one word, and her website is www.hypermobilitymd.com. If you want to follow co-host Jennifer Milner on Instagram, it's at jennifer.milner, M-I-L-N-E-R, and her website is www.jennifer-milner.com. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. We want to hear from you. Please email us at info at bendybodies.org to share feedback. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-host and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. Constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This information is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease as this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please refer to your local qualified health practitioner for all medical concerns. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.